Shared decision making in neuro-oncology. She has no conflicts, right? I have no conflicts. No so thank you, Dr. Eric, for inviting me to speak today. Can everyone hear me with my mic? Okay, great. Uh, let's start. So uh, today I'd like to talk to you about some of the interests I've had in neuro-oncology. Uh, these are more of my sort of liberal arts background interests um, as opposed to basic science. Uh, so I hope uh, you'll all bear with me on this. But we have a couple of objectives today, and I'll just run through these real quickly, and then uh, you know, as we go through, I'll keep restructuring those. Uh, today we're going to recognize and discuss some sources of decisional conflict in neuro-oncology. Um, I became interested in this over the course of my clinical career, and I've been doing this now for about 17 years. And I've had a lot of very difficult conversations, and the distress I um, witnessed in these conversations led me to sort of pursue this project when I got here and um, entered an environment where this would be possible. Uh, Following that, we're going to talk about a small study that we completed here, and we'll go through those results in a somewhat abbreviated fashion, and then discuss some of the limitations of existing shared decision-making in the field of neuro-oncology and in oncology more generally, um, but specifically for our clinic and uh, the brain tumor clinic. Uh, I'm going to briefly digress to talk about good communication skills, uh, specifically how important it is in the phase of treatment we're going to be talking about, and then uh, propose some ideas for how we might move forward to do uh, a more efficacious job. So our first objective, and this is going to be uh, the bulk of the talk, uh, with the last three being sort of more summative. Um, so what I'd like to do is first uh, give you a definition for decisional conflict. And obviously, it's up there, so you can read along with me. It's a psychological state of uncertainty that can range from mild discomfort to severe anxiety or panic uh, to the point that it can be disabling in and of itself. It has been described by many uh, authors um, going back now about 20, 25 years um, in a variety of disease states, the suffering of the patient with whatever medical problem they have can be amplified uh, due to decisional conflict by uh, medical teams that disregard the suffering inherent in deciding how a patient might move forward, live with, uh, or adapt to a treatment that may be life-extending but may be accompanied with a high risk of complications and injury. And I think all of you in the room who are clinicians recognize that oncology very squarely falls into that realm. Um, so what I'd like to do first is step back a little bit and introduce you to sort of what it is that I do when I have a newly diagnosed glioma patient. Um, and I'm going to run you through sort of the typical trajectory of one of our patients. And this is sort of anonymous patient, no particular one, it's an amalgamation. And so uh, typically the patients come to our attention after they present with an abnormal image. And this shows a left frontal um, ring-enhancing mass, it has a necrotic center, it's uh, distorted the brain. These patients will typically present with headache, 
perhaps some mild cognitive difficulties, a small percentage will present with some sort of neurologic impairment, whether it's difficulty with movement, sensation, difficulty with language. In this location, we might expect something along the lines of some difficulty moving the hand on the right and some language difficulties. These patients come uh, through a variety of avenues, but hit our neurosurgery service, and they generally have the first touch to these patients. This reflects a post-surgical MRI, which is done about 24 hours after a sur surgical excision of the mass. Typically, patients are a little bit worse neurologically immediately post-operatively and um, have quite a bit of post-anesthesia, post-operative discomfort, you know, and whatnot. Um, they're in the ICU for a few days, and then over the course of one to three to seven days, sort of slowly recuperate neurologically and are able to sort of begin to sort of re-engage with their care. At this, oh, oh. And uh, at this point, uh, patients are often discharged from the hospital, either to home or to rehab. And in the background, the pathology department is working on their diagnosis. And uh, what you see here is the initial histologic um, slides that would establish diagnosis of a glioblastoma multiform. There are really four components, and these are very nicely sort of outlined in a near textbook fashion, but these are, this is actually a patient that came through our service two weeks ago, and this is a very classic um, histologic GBM. We typically get this diagnosis within three to four days in our institution, uh, very frequently after the patient's discharge, so the patient's in the hospital very briefly. At the bottom, we see the next two steps of molecular diagnosis that becomes available, and these results take longer, somewhere between seven to 10 days on average, and we get some very important uh, prognostic and predictive information in the MGMT methylation status. What this does is gives us an idea of uh, general prognosis, but also it predicts behavior of the tumor to alkylating chemotherapies, and so this is a very important piece. Uh, and then this is the immunohistochemistry that reveals some other prognostic uh, biomarkers for GBM, and importantly, uh, the IDH1 status, and that um, is prognostic but not really predictive with regards to our treatments. So through that initial phase of therapy, um, there was a, quite a bit of variability, and it was largely driven by the neurosurgery service up until about 2010 when uh, Camillo Fadul and Evelyn Schlosser, um, along with uh, a TDI uh, student, started the first phase of our quality improvement program. This was um, in the latter phases of development when I joined in 2012 and led to a subsequent publication in 2014. Uh, this standardized the, the, um, in, the in-house pathway of our patients, um, starting from surgery, um, using the uh, intraoperative gross pathology to sort of begin to stratify where a patient might go. Are we looking at a malignant process where radiation may be needed? Is neuro-oncology consulted on every single patient to begin a planning phase? And, you know, getting the patient out of the hospital with appropriate follow-ups. And this quality improvement project went to the day of discharge and the arrangement for an outpatient neuro-oncologic consultation, which is done in 3K. So that's where we're going to start with our story today, is that outpatient clinic visit in 3K. After the patient has had their surgery, their diagnosis has been cooking in the lab, and they come back to see me or my colleague, Dr. Ralph Kolb, uh, for their diagnosis and discussion of what might be the next steps. That usually happens about 7 to 14 days after the surgery. And so this is our second phase of our quality improvement project that started in about late 2012. And really, this picks up here at the appointment in our 3K clinic. And what we sought to do was to standardize our approach between the two physicians, and at the time it was Camilla Fadul and myself, as well as nursing support, the nurse practitioners, and social work, so that we very comprehensively addressed all of the pertinent medical issues that we identified as highly critical in the neuro-oncology literature. So a lot of best practices research went into this, and we uh, developed a very standardized, um, very complete approach to things with standardized notes, standardized presentations. Um, attending to all the comorbidities that may or may not occur, and really um, focusing on sort of this, this next step up and through the initial treatment. 
And so as we go through here, um, I'm having terrible, my, my vision is terrible up close and far away. But basically what we did is we worked on this piece in here to develop a very comprehensive approach to delivering diagnostic information, discussing the treatment options so that we very carefully talked about the benefits in a very empiric, evidence-based way. We talked about the risks. We talked about the potential benefits. And we talked about the options. So we, we started with a framework of what is the standard of care for this diagnosis? What are the options or modifications to standard of care? What other options, including clinical trials, might be available? What other social supports might you need with a social worker in the room at the time? And you know, is, is any of this appropriate to this patient, or do we need to do palliative care? And so this just kind of outlines sort of the talk. Right? So there's a bit of a standard consultation that has to happen for us to deliver this amazing volume of information onto the patients. And so we start with diagnosis. And up until uh, recently, the diagnosis was largely based on uh, the histopathology. But now diagnosis in neuro-oncology is uh, dictated by the 2016 WHO reclassification, which mandates now that diagnosis for our field includes histopathology, immunohistochemistry, and molecular diagnostics. This is uh, a bit of a problem because our molecular diagnostics now can take up to three weeks to get back. So now, instead of being able to give full, you know, complete diagnosis, we're giving somewhat incomplete diagnosis with a placeholder for molecular diagnostics, um, which isn't optimal, and uh, we have a quality improvement project working on that. Um, we then go through treatment options, and this is a, a cartoon of the standard of care for a malignant glioma. This is called the STUP regimen. This has been the standard of care for, for this disease state as a general concept since 2005 when it was published in the New England Journal by Roger Stupp. And this came out of the ORTC. It has been adopted worldwide and is felt to be the standard of care. The caveat to this is that this is not curative. And what we've learned in the intervening decade is that some patients have fairly substantial benefit to this. Some patients have fairly nominal benefit to this. However, there are no other options that come close to improving the survival. And for true evidence-based medicine, survival is really the driver. Uh, so we'd go through this. and. and great detail. We provide written explanation of everything we say. So it's not just a verbal consultation. They have written, you know, basically verbatim. I mean, we go through great detail with this. We talk about the risks. We talk about the common monitoring. We talk about common side effects of both the glioblastoma or the treatment, things like blood clots, et cetera. Um, and then we talk about options, whether to get a second opinion, whether to go somewhere for a clinical trial, whether we have a clinical trial. We have a social worker who meets afterwards. And um, we, we give written content. And so the treatment, what can the treatment do? This is a slide from Monica Hagee's paper in 2005 that was a companion paper to what I just showed you. And what this showed is that uh, there is a predictive um, molecular component that's present in about 30% of glioblastomas in which the standard of care has a demonstrably better um, effect. And so in a patient with a methylated MGMT, uh, the median survival is substantially better than non-methylated. And the non-methylated patients, the improvement in their survival, their median survival, is about one to two months over radiation alone. And this is about 70% of patients. So for the last 10 years, we've known that there is definitely a, a dichotomy of patients. However, the Improvement even here was better slightly than radiation alone, and very few neuro-oncologists would have omitted Temidar in that situation um, for lack of any better option. Uh, some patients do well at two years. About 25% of the patients who are methylated are progression-free and doing fairly well, but this is still felt to be non-curative. Um, and, you know, depending on your, your sort of definition, may in fact be somewhat palliative. And so, because that's still our state of affairs, in my mind, um, our field for malignant glioma fits an archetypal situation for shared decision making. Um, really, the treatment options in this scenario are the standard of care, which we discuss, but there's good data now in the literature that 
modifications and partial treatment or partial parts of the treatment may do just as well in certain populations, the elderly, the unmethylated, uh, patients with poor performance statuses. Um, clinical trials remain a very viable option because we do not have curative therapies and the therapies we have really aren't tremendous. Um, and palliative care alone remains an option because we really can't extend survival in any kind of guaranteeable or meaningful way for many patients. And so because of that, um, one of the ways to sort of fit this into shared decision-making is to use that language. And our patients face urgent treatment decisions that confer no guaranteed cure and offer the possibility of significant risks. Brain radiation, chemotherapy are not, are not undertaken lightly, and many patients have very significant morbidity through treatment and afterwards. A number of reasonable treatment options exist, and these are all reasonable options. Um, and so um, a reasonable physician needs to sort of present all these and uh, accept all these if a patient isn't interested in standard of care. And no treatment at all is a very reasonable option, especially in the elderly. Um, no treatment at all tends to be a very um, uh, difficult uh, plan to go along with from the oncologist standpoint, I would say in my experience, but it is truly reasonable in this disease state. And so shared decision-making, uh, again, to use their language, has been espoused as the appropriate model where there is more than one treatment alternative and patient values should determine the optimal choice. And so um, I guess I'll say the, the reason I pursued this next part of the talk is that I, I have bought into this and I believe this. So, um, so what we did, and this was a project that uh, Camillo and I started as a side project to the quality improvement project that I showed you, the phase two project. And really this was to look closely at the window between uh, when we have the diagnostic talk, when we give the diagnosis to the patient and that patient starts whatever initial therapy or enters hospice. So it's a very brief window. It's about a week. Um, and what we did is we structured a way to really investigate what do our patients feel their needs are to make a good decision or that they feel that they would be sharing in the decision with their physicians. And so it was a little bit of a complex study and it involved a lot of interviews. And so it was a very time intensive for our, our research nurses, but they performed interviews according to a structured script that we developed out of work uh, by Annette O'Connor in Ottawa. And um, I'll come back to that later. Uh, but these were open-ended questions. All the answers were transcribed uh, and explored. So it was a real conversation. And these interviews took anywhere from one to two to, to longer hours. Some of our patients actually um, had to terminate them due to fatigue. They really couldn't get through the whole thing. But what we also did is, because it's not just about the patient in oncology, um, we asked their caregivers, or whoever it was the patient identified as their caregiver, to take the exact same interview with what they thought the important issues were. Um, and then, Dr. Fadul and I took the same interview for that particular patient. So we answered it, what did we think that patient's needs were? Not, you know, the patient, but that patient. Then we looked at some very basic sort of neurologic functioning scales, um, which is Karnofsky performance scale, which is sort of a more of a motor ambulatory functional state. Uh, we looked at language, which, the, uh, which is the HVLT. We looked at the trail making test, which is a uh, way to look at executive cognitive frontal lobe functions. And then we did um, some analyses that are validated in neuro-oncology looking at neurologic quality of life, and that's the MD Anderson Symptoms Index and then the FACT-BR. And many of you are um, probably familiar with the FACT-G, which is a general oncology um, validated screen, but the BR has very spe specific questions for neurologic dis um, disability. So I just wanted to give you a sample of what these interview questions were so you kind of have an idea. And I know this is like completely hard to read, but I did this on my iPhone, so I apologize. But basically, what I'll read to you is, um, you know, at this time, you have uh, had a completed surgery for malignant glioma. What do you think the most important decisions that people with malignant gliomas face? So these are pretty general questions. Um, and it moves from there. It says, you know, you have some important decisions. You know, what is the most important part of this? You know, and it, it's not asking you what treatment's most important. It's what decision or what do you, what is most important to you? 
Uh, and it goes through a whole variety of these, and I, I don't know if you can see it or not. Um, but it, it's it's quite lengthy, um, and it's all open-ended, and it talks about how how do you feel when you're trying to make these decisions? What sort of emotional state are you in? What kind of barriers are you having? Who's helping you with this? It go, you know, it goes on and on. Um, and this was a validated instrument that we slightly adapted to brain tumors as opposed to other things. And at the end, we uh, ask, is there anything else that we should be doing to provide you more information that would help you make these decisions? And it's only four pages, but it would take up to two hours for people. So this was a, a real conversation that they were having. And it was really interesting. Um, and I'll say the results were really humbling and surprising. And, and then we realized that they shouldn't have been surprising at all. Um, but I'll walk you through in some detail what the patient said, and then I'm going to show you the contrasting answers from the caregivers and the um, and the doctors, no, Camilla and I, but it's blinded. You, can, you don't know who's Camilla, who's me. So, although maybe, maybe you can figure it out, I don't know. Um, anyhow, so there were three, so what we did is we took all of this, oh, Siri's yelling at me, I apologize. Um, and so what we did is we took um, one of these qualitative data programs called NVivo and we sort of, you know, took all the words that were coming out of their mouths, as they say, from rush hour, and we came up with themes and these nodes. And the three major themes that came out of the answers from the patients were um, big. These are big global themes, um, but they were reiterated in a variety of ways um, throughout. And the number one most prominent um, theme was the loss of personal autonomy. So these patients um, really felt that they had no control over their lives and that the control had been wrested from them by others, whether that was family, whether that was the physician, or whether that was sort of an amorphous unknown and there just was no control. Um, the second most common was a, a sense of, of marked urgency um, and impending mortality. I, I kind of lumped those together. They're not the same, but they're related, I believe. Um, the third um, prominent theme was uh, a perception on the patient's part that there were no options. Um, this was, this questionnaire was um, gone through with the patient anywhere from 24 to 72 hours after the talk that I have outlined where we had fairly laboriously gone through the options and, you know, had pretty well given a lot of content that we thought was pretty comprehensive. Um, and yet it was fairly uniform that the patient saw no options. Um, so let me just, you know, sort of break those apart a little bit. So loss of autonomy. Um, this was very complicated. Um, there were very conflicted perceptions, even within one patient, among the patients. But um, the patients generally, and I speak, I, I, by necessity, I have to speak in generalizations because going through each comment wouldn't make a whole lot of sense coherently. Um, but really, the, the patients did not feel that they had the independence to make their own decisions and that they were not in control of their trajectory and that it was in someone else's hands and that they were along for the ride. Whether that was an active anxiety or a passivity varied for the individual, but it was a very prominent theme. Um, they had considerable conflict that they were experiencing within their family and with their caregivers that by and large they were not sharing with their family members, but did share with our research nurse. And so the research nurses did a really nice job at pulling sort of these emotions out where they had not been expressed prior. Um, there was a very strong feeling among these patients that the physician was simply dictating their treatment. And um, Dr. Fudul and I took that for exactly what it's worth. And, you know, we took that as a very serious, you know, call to arms that perhaps our style wasn't working. Um, and then one of the um, sort of the, the fourth most common theme was that Several of our patients who were not cognitively impaired were extremely fearful that their cognition would soon be impaired. And so they understood that they were losing control and that this might be their last chance at retaining some control over their lives and they needed to use it wisely and they needed to use it urgently. And so that was sort of a combination of the urgency sense and this loss of autonomy it was sort of this perceived like, you know, if I don't make the right decision now, I'll never have another chance. Um, so the sense of urgency. 
Um, so uh, this gets back to philosophy 101 a little bit. Um, and so I think, you know, as I read through this, I mean, what really came out is that these patients were in the, in the middle of a very profound existential crisis um, that the rest of the room was not experiencing and was just not even aware of and, and shame on us, really. Um, so what's an existential crisis, right? Um, so it's a some, anything that challenges your belief in, about life, death, meaning, purpose, our sense of mastery and potency in the world, you know, the foundations upon which you build your life. These are patients who have just been told they have a malignant brain tumor. You know, this is not a surprise, um, but the fact that it was everything that was in the room and everything that was in the answers, I guess, was a surprise to us about how pervasive this was. Um, looking back, it's possible that our presentation technique had something to do with this because what we learned going through our sort of best practices research when we were doing our quality improvement study was that there's fairly good data out there that if you start chemo radiation for malignant glioma within a month of your resection, outcomes and survival are improved. And so we, we took that on as um, a best practice measure that time to initiation of treatment was an objective measurable goal. And so it's possible that because of that goal on the physician side, we induced sort of a sense of urgency and a sense of pressure that was perhaps altering sort of um, what already was present or worsening that. And so um, the existential plight in cancer has been written about for many, many eons, probably going back to Hippocrates, but it's very real. And I just want to highlight that um, in our day and age, we talk about the heroic things we're doing and the life-changing things, but also what we're doing is we're witnessing um, an individual's sort of existential crisis. And being aware of that is probably a good thing and makes us better empathic doctors if we're sort of on board with it. Um, and so this is from 1976. This is a Hallmark article sort of written about uh, cancer in general and um, not neuro-oncology in particular. And really, this is a process that people go through. Um, this study really looked at patients through the first 100 days after diagnosis. Our um, study looked at the first like seven days. Um, so. Uh, but it's severe. Um, and I think part of what we're going to talk about in a minute is that this was so prevalent in patients um, that it really, the, the team was on one page and the patient was just on a different page. Um, and when we were talking about our treatment options, because of the existential crisis that the patients were in, the overwhelming sort of behavioral drive is this urge to have to do something. And then the patients were terrified that what they did would not necessarily be the right something. But what were they really afraid of? And they very explicitly told us that they were afraid of not treating their tumor. Makes perfect sense. And what that would look like and what the deterioration from there would be. But they were probably equally afraid of what would treatment look like. And so, you know, what would it look like to have your brain radiated, to take all this chemotherapy? But because it was neurologic, I think there was an additional burden of, um, a sudden recognition that you're going to lose your independence, you're going to be a burden, you're, you know, people are relatively sick in the immediate post-operative period from their craniotomies, and so they really do have a, a very dramatic shift in their independence. Um, and, of course, um, patients were afraid of dying. I mean, they had just been given a malignant um, diagnosis. So um, the perception of lack of options in my analysis of this probably stems from those two things in that, you know, there's a whole lot of noise. Patients can't hear. They can't attend. We're giving them something. And most of the answers, when we asked about what did the doctors talk to you about, were virtually nil. They could recite just about nothing. They could say radiation and chemo or I'll die. It was incredibly black and white. It was not nuanced in the slightest. They could not tell us anything about it. And I'll go back to the fact that Dr. Fadul and I had really put a lot of work into giving this very you know, high quality consultation. Um, and you know, I think there are real implications here for informed consent and shared decision making if you know, there's so much noise. Um, 
And so, you know, what's informed consent, right? You get the information, you're given the information by your physician, you're told about the risk and benefits, you can weigh those, you ask your questions, you know, the questions are answered so that you understand what's going on. And then you're able to use that information to make a really good decision about moving forward. Um, and in this study with this small group of patients, you know, I was really concerned that maybe their caregivers were doing the informed consent and the patients really weren't able to do it. And it wasn't because they weren't intelligent or because they had whatever informational barriers, just they couldn't hear us. Um, so this gets back to sort of my belief that shared decision-making is a good thing and that it's relevant in my neuro-oncology clinic. Um, and so where is it, is it relevant? Shared decision-making is, is relevant where there really is a choice. And so for me, the crux of this is that we, we want our patients to understand that while there's a standard of care, they're able to make choices about what's really valuable in their lives and how you would move forward with that um, in a sort of non-judgmental way and that the families understand that, you know, you don't have to do what we're telling you because it's what we say is best. It's just sort of what we have. Um, and my interpretation of this is that despite what we thought we were doing, we really had, had not achieved shared decision-making in these patients. So just to sort of backing off um, from that, um, in oncology, we're very evidence-based and necessarily, and it's driven um, by the FDA, it's driven by the way we arrange our clinical trials based on survival, and we, as oncologists, I as an oncologist, do focus on survival, you know, longevity. Um, despite the fact that I'm paying attention to the other things. Um, and so effective care, right, strong evidence base. Benefit is much greater than the risk. Um, everybody should get this. So what's the example of this that comes to my mind? Insulin in a type 1 diabetic. Not a choice. This is, it is overwhelmingly positive. This is, you know, you, know <laughs> you refuse insulin, it's, just, it's not rational, it's not reasonable. It's a, effective care. Okay, that's one camp. There is virtually nothing in neuro-oncology, in my opinion, that fits into that camp. So I'm just gonna put that out there and that's an opinion, people might argue that. And that includes the standard of care treatment. Preference sensitive care, on the other hand, says that there's data out there that a whole bunch of different things may be as good. They may be not equivalent, they may not be perfect, um, but they're all, kind of reasonable and depending on what you want out of this are very good options. Um, the treatment requires trade-offs and so you're not asking someone to do something that doesn't have a, a downside and our treatments absolutely have a downside um, and then values. And so really sort of the sweet spot for shared decision making ideally would be in our clinic if we could figure out how to do it. Um, and then what I wanted to do is just sort of step back and say, so the patients didn't seem to be doing shared decision-making with us or with anyone. Um, they had a sense of conflict with the physicians, with their families, with themselves. Uh, what did the caregivers think? And these are generally spouses, um, an adult child, and there was one patient who just did not want anybody to answer these questions for them. So it's an incomplete list. But the caregivers felt that the patients were pretty independent. They felt pretty good about it. They thought the patient was making their decisions. Uh, so the patient wasn't talking to the caregiver about these concerns of theirs. Um, they felt that their role was to support the patient emotionally and logistically. I think that's pretty evident. Um, the caregivers were by necessity, I suspect, and by sort of, you know, compensation, um, very concerned with the practicalities of treatment. There was a lot of discussion in the interviews about the logistics and, you know, well, we have to do radiation, but do we do go to the 125 miles away or the 155 miles away? And a lot of discussion along those lines. Um, none of the big three, big four themes that the patients discussed came up at all in the caregiver interviews. Um, and the interesting thing that the caregivers talked about that the patients did not talk about was sort of the external pressures that sort of instantly um, erupt around a family that gets a, a serious diagnosis and how stressful that was. Um, and I'm not sure I had a great understanding of how quickly this happens to a family, 
Um, but many of our caregivers talked about this barrage of information that every well-meaning person they've ever met in their life sort of dumps on them and how, how terribly confusing it was and terribly stressful. And the caregivers really felt that the team was working better than the patient did. The physicians. And uh, so the physicians, we talked about medicine. We're doctors. We talked about medicine in these interviews. We talked about survival. We talked about how the standard of care improves survival. We talked about weighing the side effects and the options and how you might mitigate side effects and how, you know, how to do this. We didn't talk so much about pure hospice care as an option for really any of these patients. Um, we felt that the patient was independent. Um, we felt that we were being respectful of the patient's wishes. We felt that the patient was a full partner in the conversation. Um, and we, again, we didn't touch on any of the themes that the patients were worried about. So uh, back to our taxonomy, uh, the physicians were giving a consultation and had a set of beliefs that were working along the lines that we were delivering effective care rather than preference-sensitive care. Um, and we were completely unaware of this. We thought we were doing other words. But I think being very critical thinkers and doing a good self-analysis of ourselves, we were actually behaving in a camp that we didn't realize we were behaving in. Um, and so. So at the end of that, I believe shared decision-making would be a lofty goal, an honorable goal for our clinic. So what do we know about shared decision-making in neuro-oncology? Well, unfortunately, the answer is sort of nothing. Um, and so what we do know is that as a concept in sort of medicine and cancer in general, the majority of patients want to be a full partner and an active partner in their decision-making. Um, and that as time has gone by, this is more and more a societal norm and a societal expectation. When patients report that they feel more involved, they do better on an emotional level, they do better on a quality of life level, they have less decisional conflict, you know, aka anxiety about their treatment. And um, that shared decision making as a tool to support other medical fields is effective in. Um, a variety of ways. Um, there's very good data that information transfer improves with shared decision making. Patients have more confidence in their decisions, and there's more, patient, more active patient involvement. Um, so this is a cartoon from uh, Dr. Elwin's paper from 2012, I believe. Um, but it's a very nice cartoon about um, sort of where I think we are now in our clinic and where I would like to add um, sort of a space. Um, so the choice talk we give in neuro-oncology in, in kind of two different ways. But the main one is we do a meet and greet when the patient is in the hospital. So we have an inpatient neurologic consultation. This is your neuro-oncologist, you know, me or Paula Rausko. We're going to be talking to you about your diagnosis when you come back to the visit. We're going to talk about treatment options. And we kind of lay out that there are options, there are things that are going to do. Your diagnosis is going to dictate what we talk about, but there are options, and we're going to help you through that. So we have sort of this intro talk. Then we have the actual sort of options talk. You know, we give you the diagnosis. This is what's out there. This is what we're going to actually kind of recommend and, or, you know, recommend with modifications, et cetera. And that's the, the consultation we did our needs analysis around. But what would be helpful, I believe, is some sort of talk after that walking people through the decision. And that's really sort of the shared decision-making part of it, where the tools that have been developed in that um, sort of academic space could be very helpful. Um, and then some way to bring that tools back to the physician um, and kind of have a second consultation. Unfortunately, that's not the way sort of our clinic works. Um, and we don't really have that second talk with people just as a counseling talk. Um, and so that we need to kind of think, how are we going to operate, operationalize that? Um, and like I said, there's really virtually no research on this in, in my field. In cancer in general, yes. In my field, no. Um, what's interesting is we have looked at distress. But the, the biggest and the best sort of systematic review was about the caregivers, not the patients themselves. But it, it really pulled out a lot of the similar existential problems, but in that role, not in the patient role. So it was, um, you know, guilt, responsibility, isolation, you know, caregiver needs, not patient needs. Um, there's 
in the last five years, all major clinical trials in neuro-oncology have done a secondary analysis of quality of life for the investigational therapy, whether that's, you know, adding a new chemotherapy or different radiation approaches, what have you. And the, the validated quality of life tools, the FACT-BR, the MADSI, any of those are used and it's, you know, been reported on extensively. Um, but as we all know, the driver in a new treatment for oncology is survival. Um, so that hasn't been terribly helpful. And there are exactly not one patient decision aid that's been published to date in neuro-oncology. What has been published? Well, the ORTC, which is the European um, cooperative group that has done a, a, an enormous amount of neuro-oncology work, did produce this GBM prognosticator a few years ago. And what it took was all of the prognostic sort of demographic markers, biologic markers that were identified in randomized clinical trials, and they tried to flip it on its head and say, if we put these in as a calculator and we plug our patients in, how well can we prognosticate at least how long they're going to live, right? So sort of the, the very basic, you know, first question out of everybody's mouth, how long do I have? And so they looked at this, and they did a very nice study. They plugged everybody in. They didn't actually tell the patients. They just plugged them in, and then they you know, watched their survival. And uh, what they found was that it was tremendously inaccurate. So it was just, there's no way you could use this to counsel patients. And they published this data, like, I don't know, three years ago now. Um, but really, what, um, what you can see is, let's see if I can figure out how to do this. So if the calculator said you have 10 months to live, this is how long people actually lived. You know, It was like all over the map. If it said you had 15 months to live, you know, it's all over the map. You know, there are people here that you have 15 months to live. You know, they're living two, three months. And so basically what they, um, they said is, please don't use this. We developed it. This has not been replicated using molecular data. There's nothing that is um, a prognostication tool using any of the modern neuropathologic or molecular um, uh, prognostic information. So um, nothing, nothing. So this is just based on... Um, the RPA analysis type things and, you know, age, extent of resection, Karnofsky performance scale, that kind of thing. Um, and then this just talks about sort of accuracy. And unfortunately, um, the prognostication scale was like all over the map. It was imprecise, inaccurate, worthless. And the only time you would actually want to do this, and I think, you know, as a clinician, the only time you want to be given a prognosis is when you're down here. You're super accurate and you're super precise. So you're giving good quality information. And that's what patients want is this. You know, at best, maybe we're given this. You know, we're ballparking it, and we're usually wrong. Um, one of my colleagues, when I was um, younger, um, took a year, and he was a he's at the University of Michigan, a guy named Larry Junk. Um, he was a neuro-oncologist. He wrote down every patient for a year. What he, when, you know, when the patient said, how long do you think I have to live, or how long have I got, you know? He would write that down in his notebook, and then he, you know, just kept track of it. Like, when did the patient die? This is absolutely uncontrolled, you know, statistically worthless data. But it was, it, it was interesting because he was sort of, I don't know, mid-career, having the same existential crisis that I'm having, whatever. Um, and uh, he came up with the exact same data: is that he was so far off and so wrong that he absolutely stopped giving. He just basically said, "I have no idea." He said, "I can tell you when you're in the last week of life, but before that, I don't have any idea." Um, so that's. So we don't have, so we can't do that. Um, but what might, you know, what's the hypothesis on why this might be helpful? And, you know, is there some way that we could move the needle and improve quality of life with this? Um, and this really shows that there are sort of three measurable areas that we may be able to construct some sort of decision support that would allow patients um, to move forward. And we just need to think about what are we actually trying to do? Um, a lot of shared decision-making papers, the outcome measures are information transfer. And that's really important, but that wasn't the major complaint of our patients. Um, it was sort of more the emotive, um, affective problems and how can we use a shared decision-making tool to really get at this first with the you know, autonomy and the sort of existential crisis, get, let them get past that, settle that somehow so that then there is information transfer. And that's and that's tricky, and that's what we've been thinking about lately. 
this is um, an example of things that are out there that are usable or adaptable to our situation. This is the Ottawa Personal Decision Guide. This was um, developed quite a number of years ago. The interviews that we asked were based off of this, and it was it's sort of a companion kind of package. Um, and this is helpful. We've been playing with this and sort of putting things in, like what exactly would you put in the options? Um, how do you deliver that information to improve information transfer, but not to increase anxiety. And so, you know, we've had some discussions and you know, our, our teams had some discussions sort of back and forth on what would you put in here and what level of detail and um, you know, what would actually be useful. Um, this is something that the patient does at home though. So this is like a homework project. Uh, and then the patient would come back in and uh, discuss it. And the problem is we don't have an appointment set up to come back and discuss this. So we'd have to figure out how to make that work. There's a couple of things out there commercially. The option grid, many of you may be familiar with. It is a Dartmouth College TDI project that has um, been launched nationally. Um, and so I'm hoping to you know, have some discussions to see if this is something that we can use. Um, there's some other private companies, like for-profit companies out there. This is a Wiser Care. Uh, and it's a web-based sort of video tutorial of uh, what your doctor might tell you if you have early stage prostate cancer. Um, it's not interactive in any way. It's sort of, you know, cute little South Park figures talking about, you know, radical prostatectomy versus radiotherapy versus, you know, active surveillance. Um, but whether even something like that, we could adapt to us. Um, uh, and there is one study that, you know, this improves information transfer at least. Uh, so. We don't have much as far as tools right now. This is where I'm going to sort of tack back to talking about talking. So quality of life in our cancer patients is driven by their relationship with their doctor. There's very good data out there. And we all can fall into very common communication pitfalls. Um, and um, as, you know, in my residency director hat, um, part of my job is to work with residents about being aware of these things and figuring out ways to not do them. Um, and those include, you know, the things that are listed here, basically not listening, lecturing, not allowing um, the person to talk, not allowing space for like, letting information settle in. Um, and premature reassurance is one that I think um, you know, I think I'm prone to that. I think, you know, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And, you know, and that actually can be counterproductive. Um, and there are skills that are learnable for all of us to do better at this, and myself included. Um, and then there are really key areas that have been identified in the literature where communication is absolutely paramount. And these are intuitive. It's, you know, the first time you meet somebody, the first time you give them bad news, um, you know, the time when you're making anti-cancer um, decisions, enrolling someone in a clinical trial, um, and actually, um, the one that I, I've always found most interesting is when you finish treatment. That, that day that you finish your initial treatment and you're going to let somebody go back to their non-chemotherapy filled life, that's a, really, that's a really hard conversation for a lot of people. Um, and this is really important And how do we incorporate good communication with some of these tools that we talk about for shared decision making. And what are the communication barriers that I see in our clinic? Um, one is just sort of modern medicine. You know, we have, we have a lot of patients and we have a limited time to talk to patients and, and you know, someone in the middle of an existential crisis isn't going to get over it in 15 minutes because I have to get to my next patient and, you know, how do I, how do, I do that? Um, I talked about this, that the standard of care treatment window for maximal benefit is discrete. It, it exists and we want to try to keep people, you know, on task and, you know, kind of moving them forward. And so we do kind of, you know, rush the process a little bit. Um, because we're trying to do the best for someone. Um, and then this is a, a more recent problem, and this is, uh, I had alluded to, is that now with um, the molecular testing, it's taking us quite a bit longer to actually get our definitive diagnoses, and this is slowing our process down. Um, you know, pre-existing psychological states, and unfortunately, when we meet people, we don't really know what those are most of the time, and so we're, it's sort of a black box, and we're not sure where to start or how to help, uh, how to help people for that. Um, in neurology, at least, um, we have language barriers um, not related to English as a second language, but um, due to aphasia or cognitive dysfunction. 
In our study, we had specifically um, selected out for patients who are aphasic just because it was an interview-based study and there was no way to do it. Um, about 10% of our patients do have a significant aphasia, um, and that just makes all of this, you know, that much more impossible. Uh, and then, um, you know, the basic things in all of medicine with shared decision-making, you know, educational background, medical literacy. We found one of our patients um, through this process um, was unable to read. Um, we didn't know that until we started having him fill out these things. He had, you know, he had been unable to read his whole life and had amazing adaptive capabilities to hide it. And um, so you know, that's a big deal. You know, his educational literacy standpoint was really poor. How's he going to understand what we're talking about? You know, when we're talking these sort of, you know these big guns, chemotherapy things, and he didn't understand our terminology. Uh, and then I guess the other, uh, you know, that came out through this study is that it's very common and it's very possible and probably the norm that the patient and the physician have mismatching agendas. Um, and awareness of this is, you know, good. It's a, sort of the first step of a, you know, this is like a, I'm giving like a, the importance of a 12-step program talk here or something, you know, like the, the first step is admitting you have a problem. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then obviously the patient's you know crisis and anxiety is going to make it so that they're unable to hear. Not that they're not listening, not that they're not engaged. They just are not able to retain the information. Um, and so this is um, just a really nice description of why I think it's so hard to transfer information at that talk. You know that diagnosis talk is so hard and so distressful. Um, and everybody can read this. I think I don't know if I can. This comes from a blog, from a, a psycho-oncology blog, and I just thought it really captured what it was that I was seeing in these visits that I found so disturbing and uncomfortable. Um, and this sort of gets it pretty, pretty right, I think. Um, and then the last part of it, however, is that this is not something that is permanent. This is something that we can intervene and help. And that patients can perk up if we're giving the right tools and the right roadmap. And then that maybe is the job that we need to focus on here. If everybody's done, raise your hand if you're done. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So as we're getting to the end here, my last objective is to pro propose novel communication approaches. And at this, feel free to have a better idea than me. I don't have the answer. Um, this is, you know, what can we do with our current approach? We have this binder that uh, we give to everybody. It's a big binder. It's old school three ring binder. You know, it's, it's super low tech. It's got a ton of information in it. And right now we're doing a little bit of a questionnaire QI project to see what, you know, is this helpful? What, what should we do instead? Should we be using new media? Can we take that content and put it in new media so that people actually use it more? Um, uh, you know, is there some way to use MyDH? Um, at the neuro-oncology meeting um, last month in um, Arizona, there was a really interesting talk about a patient who happened to be an MIT engineer who had some amazing ideas about how to take uh, medical records and make them uh, sort of empowering for the patient. Um, I don't know enough about the constraints of EDH to know if that's an absolute pipe dream or if that would be possible, but he seemed to think it was, and he's an MIT engineer, so there you go. <laughs> so it must be possible. Um, and then uh, I've been exploring partnerships with advocacy groups, um, regional groups, and this is sort of more to come kind of thing, and then a novel decision tool. And I think this is where my greatest interest lies. Um, and so I'm just going to go ahead. So my grand vision for the world, right? So like, uh, it's not conquering Rome. It's um, what I think would be great and that I would love to be able to offer my patients is something that they control, okay? So it's a tool that the patient decides where their access point is, how basic, how complex, when, where. So, you know, they can take it home. They can use it, whatever. The patient's in control. Gives them back their autonomy. It gives them all of their pertinent information so that the data they have is at their fingertips. You know, that's sort of where the EDH piece comes in, perhaps. Um, and then it provides all the information that they feel they need. That is quality information. The number one source of information in our um, needs assessment study was from the internet. And as we all know, Google and the internet is a terrible way to get information, especially when your life depends on it. 
And so what I would like to do is figure out a way that we can scale this. And you know what? For the patients who have the medical literacy, let's get them the right articles. Let's get them, you know, what they actually need to make an informed decision. But if that is way above their heads or they're not emotionally ready for that, let's do something pretty basic, like one of those option grid, you know, choices or the Ottawa where it's really pretty basic. Um, you know, let's there's ways to assess values and then rank options, you know, interfacing with those values and then kind of figure out a way or an algorithm for patients to feel comfortable with whatever decisions they make or at least understand why they made those decisions and understand that it was their decision and not their doctor's decision. And I think this last point is really important because now I've been doing this long enough that I've had both patients and family members come back towards the end of their disease and say, I wish I had never done this. I, I, you know, I, I regret the way this turned out. I should have never taken these treatments. Um, and you know, they didn't understand it, but they're gonna be, you know, especially the surviving person, they're left with a lot of regrets um, that perhaps we could have avoided. And best practice would be that everybody does well. So I'm gonna skip that for length of time. Um, because we work in an academic medical center, part of my, biggest concern right now is how, when I get my perfect patient decision app made, how am I going to know it works and what outcomes am I going to measure? And this is what I'm, I've been mulling in my head. Um, I'll give five bucks to anybody who can tell me who this is. Yeah, Camus. Okay. So, um, and it's interesting because you, you would think, right, that these existential concerns are completely unmeasurable and there's just no way, and this is just forget it, you know, it's just, you're not going to be able to figure it out. But um, going through some of the psychodynamics and psychology literature, there are some validated measures out there that get at this. They're not perfect, but they can start to get at this. And it, I think incorporating some, some of this work from other fields may be helpful given how strong the sort of existential component was when we did our needs analysis. And this is just another scale. So in summary, I finally got to the end here for you. Um, the immediate post-diagnosis phase uh, in neuro-oncology, as perhaps other places, is fraught with complicated patient emotional states. Existential concerns interfere with patients' ability to absorb information and recommendations needed to make urgent medical decisions so that they don't have sort of all day to figure this out. Our consultation approach, despite our best efforts, does not seem to be adequately achieving the goals that we set for our own clinic. Um, and the ideal decision aid does not exist. Uh, and that is my interest in moving forward. Um, so there you go requires a multifaceted approach. What doesn't? So my acknowledgments, uh, this was funded by the Brain Tumor Research Fund, and my major collaborators are Heather Wishart, who was invaluable, Camillo, who was here and supported this and was actually game enough to, to participate and take all these uh, quizzes with me and uh, be the only other physician to uh, be self-critical enough to analyze this, and then Sandy Steele, who was our research nurse, who really did all the legwork and transcribed you know, uh, untold hours of interviews. So thank you very much for your attention. If you have time. Well, I was just to say, the little known rule is that if you run out of time, you will <laughs> The speaker has to take you out for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go ahead and do it. Well, I can handle that. Yeah, so uh, great. We're very interesting. Now, I, your, your last point about measuring outcomes, I think, is so important uh, in this field. I mean, what, what is the standard right now in looking at factors which are successful? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I know the standard because shared decision-making isn't my field, um, but what exists are really three camps, as far as I can tell. One camp being information transfer. You know, do, after using this, does the person understand more about what is being told to them? One camp is, after using this, are you less anxious, more content, those kinds of sort of psychological validated scales. 
and one camp that's not really relevant in my mind to oncology is shared decision making in more of like a primary care setting where you can measure behavioral outcomes. So are people checking their blood sugar more regularly after participating in the shared decision making? And so like and there's a lot of ways you can measure sort of changes in behavior and you know you could even you know you can even do sort of medical metrics, you know, is your blood pressure better controlled and those kinds of things. And so it's sort of those three camps. And then within that there's a fair amount of variability about what tool you measure with. Those sound like, I mean, I, I, I'm a little familiar with it, but those sound like more of a short-term yeah. measures of success of yeah. decision-making, but yeah. I, I guess I'm more focusing on what are the, the outcomes you want in, in the mid to longer term. Yeah, it, and... Yeah, and that's hard. We initially envisioned this project to come back and requery people at the time of their first recurrence and then the caregivers after death. That didn't work so well. Um, coming back at those moments um, wasn't really feasible. Um, and so that's going to take some more thought. Um, we had sort of thought through this sort of, you know, is there a way we can do like a look back, you know, satisfaction with care, satisfaction with your decisions. but at the end of the day, it, it, because of just how difficult this disease is, it was just really intrusive to go back in and kind of do these queries again, and we just let that go. So, thank you. Thanks.